You are listening to the Sermon Podcast of Redemption Chapel in Stowe, Ohio. For more resources and information, go to redemptionchapel.com. It is really great to celebrate what he has done. I love getting to sing about what he will do. I love singing about the second coming, right? When he shall return in robes of white. Man. I look forward to that day, but here we sit in between what he will do and what he has done. And in the midst of that, man, we need to cling to him. He is our great hope. We need to hear from him. And before we turn to the word of God, we always pray to remind ourselves that we don't need to hear from a person. We need to hear from God himself. So let's bow our heads and remind ourselves of that now. Father, in a good way, would you help us to long for that day where all the saints will rise and we will see Jesus face to face. God, I long for that day. But God, until that day comes, would you sustain us? Would you speak to us? Would you move in our lives? We ask that you would do that now in your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. So right after college, for me, I felt the tug for missions. So I was about 22. I take off to India by myself. I had no idea what I was getting into. I was way in over my head and found that to be true for the next following months. I didn't know what I was doing. And part of what I realized is, man, I'm going to do a lot of different stuff, but we're also going to do medical missions. So I realized when I get there that we're going to go, and we had some doctors come, that we're going to bring medical missions out to these villages. I'm like, sweet. You know, I'd love to pray for people, maybe do a little devotion after. But on the way to these medical outreach with these doctors, one of the doctors looks at me, and he's like, all right, and you're going to be kind of the triage nurse. And I'm like... The way he's staring at me, it seems like he's talking to me. He was talking to me. Like, I was going to go be a triage nurse. And I'm like, bro, I didn't go to med school. I went to Kent State. That's like a couple ticks down, right? Like, psychology and nursing, not a lot of overlap of credits. Like, I don't know anything about nursing. And I was going to be the triage nurse. I'm like, I don't know if this is legal or okay, but... Give me a scalpel, you know, a stat. Let's start cutting, right? I kid you not, true story, on the way, they just teach me. We're on like this bumpy road in this kind of village. They're teaching me how to take blood pressure. I'm like, this doesn't seem like a good idea. Like, we need to rethink the plan. So I learned how to do like triage nursing in like a 20-minute car ride into a village. And I was going to be the triage nurse. Wasn't great. I don't know. So here I was, felt way in over my head, but if you know anything about the medical field, I think you probably understand, even if it seems difficult, it is necessary, right? Triage just means to sort out. So as people would come, we have to sort out, okay, is this a critical situation or can this wait? And part of the reason I tell you that story of my foyer into triage nursing it's because, you know, I don't even know this, that term wasn't always just a medical term. 
It actually wasn't until World War I, and before that, you would just use that to sort out. Gavin Ortland has a book, it says, Making the Case for Theological Triage. As we look at this stack of stones, I think it is important for all of us, and maybe you're like, oh, I don't understand most of those words, that seems overwhelming. It is important for all of us to be able to do a little theological triage to sort out as we're looking at different doctrines. Okay, is this critical or is this a different category? Because as we're going into this next sermon on the stack of stones, as we look at this stack of stones, it is going to be crucial that we all know how to do a little bit of theological triage. So this has been a great series. I hope you've enjoyed it. It's fun for me, particularly diving into the Old Testament. I hope you've enjoyed that. And as we're kind of in the story, I want to catch up before we get to our stack of stones to kind of remember where we're at in the story. Right, so this is God's people going into the promised land. They build all these stack of stones. But let's kind of hear where they're at in the conquest. And I want to look at Joshua 21 together. 21 verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it and they settled there. So the story of Joshua, it actually breaks down pretty easy. If you're looking for an outline of Joshua, the first five chapters, you see they enter the land, then they're in all these battles. I mean, it is a war for the next six chapters as they take the land and then they divide it up. And we're kind of right at that hinge point. We were just in 21 and now we're in the last major transition of the book where they retain the land. So that's so important to kind of remember where we're at in the story. This is God's people, and they have been in battle. And then what do we just read? The war's over. We won. The soldiers are coming home. I debated, actually, my first round of slides. I had that picture in Times Square where that sailor has that nurse, and he's like planting a big kiss on her. But I didn't know if they were married, and I didn't want to put sin up on the screen, right? So I felt convicted. That might be sinful, so I didn't want to put it up there, right? But that's kind of, we all are familiar with that scene, right? Like just parades. The war is over. That's where they're at. God has been faithful. They've won the war, and now the soldiers are coming home. I mean, this is, Israel is going to have a generation of boomers, right? They're going to have a baby boom in nine months because all the soldiers are coming home. That's where we're at. One other detail you need to understand. So you see the kind of the breakdown, right? All of it is about the land. Entering the land, they cross the River Jordan. That is the boundary of the promised land in the Bible. But what we didn't read is before God's people go into the promised land. See, Israel is composed of 12 tribes at this time. Two and a half of the tribes... Gad, Reuben, and half the tribe of Manasseh, they're on the east side of the Jordan. This is before they go in, and they're out and looking at the land, they're like, it's pretty nice, right? Low taxes, the schools are good, like it seems like a super nice neighborhood, sidewalks, right? So they're on the east side of the Jordan, and they're like, we kind of like it here. So they go to Joshua, and they make a plan. Hey, I know the whole book is about us taking the land, but we kind of like it over here. What if we stayed? And he says, that's fine. Here's the deal. 
God has promised us this land west of the Jordan. And you can't abandon your brothers and sisters. You need to go over and fight with us. And if you fight with us and take the land, you can go back. And so that's the deal they make. And that's what we just read in 21. And Joshua after that says, you guys have been faithful. You've done your part. Now you can go back, cross the River Jordan back on. And it's hard to, I mean, it's so significant, that river, because that was the boundary. But he says, I bless you guys. You guys go back to the east side of the Jordan. So that's kind of the context And as the soldiers are about to head home, we see our stack of stones for this week. Let's look at this together in Joshua 22, 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. See, this stack of stones we see is an altar. An imposing altar. It is meant to be visible and obvious. So, right, they fight the battle in the promised land, and then they're heading back. As they're about to cross the Jordan, they say, hey, let's build a big old stack of stones. Let's build an altar. And again, I love diving into these narratives because the stories are just fun. But this is where the story gets a little crazy. Right, So it's meant to be seen. They cross over. Nine and a half tribes on the other side of the Jordan. Let's see what happens when they see this. Joshua twenty two twelve. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Now that's just a quick verse. But I want you to think about what's happening here. Right again, we kind of talked about World War II and the war's over. Just imagine that, right? Like after we win World War II, we come home, and then in a couple months, America decide, hey, that war with Germany was fun. How about let's start a civil war? Why don't we all kill each other? Sound good? That's what's happening. After this massive war, now God's people, right after the war is over, is on the brink of a civil war. Like, that doesn't tell us much. But man, that seemed to escalate quickly. Like, how did that happen? All of Israel, the heads of Israel, you know, see this. Like, man, did you guys see that altar? Yeah. What's the deal, right? What do you think we should do? We should probably kill them all. Oh, yeah, sounds like a good plan. All in favor? Aye, aye, okay. All opposed? And then I don't know who spoke up. You know, Jeff in the corner and... Jeff's not a Hebrew name. That's probably not right. But somebody speaks up like, hey, uh, I get it. That sounds like fun diving into a civil war, but maybe we should talk to him first. Okay, who wants to go with Jeff's plan? I, I, okay, so they decide, hey, instead of just slaughtering our own people, let's go figure out. And it's hard for us to relate because it seems silly. But it actually was a really big deal. This was tantamount to them walking away from God. It was only meant to be one altar in the promised land. And this would have been a symbol of them walking away. So as much as it seems silly, this was a big deal. But instead of just immediately going to war, they figure, okay, let's hear them out. Let's see what they have to say. So they send a contingent. And then the two and a half tribes on the east of the Jordan River, here's their response. 
If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did this, did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. So now we find out what this stack of stones was meant to be. So they build a big altar, which was a massive offense. But what they answer, like, no, 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 listen. This was just meant to be a replica. We're not actually going to sacrifice on it. This isn't for offerings. This is just a replica. Because, again, we can't underestimate what the Jordan's River significance is. They knew, look, when we get on the other side of this, Man, we're afraid in generations to come that, man, you're going to cut us out of the family of God. It'd be almost kind of like, say, like up in Alaska, right? Like still part of America, but you get up there like Canada, Alaska. And so the Alaskans decide, hey, let's build a replica of the Statue of Liberty. Right? And so you go up there and you see, oh, okay, they're with those guys. That's what was going on in the minds of the two and a half tribes that they said, let it be a witness to us and you We are still a part of the family of God, even though we live further away. And this is a massive deal. I mean, they are teetering on the edge of civil war. And they try to explain, look, this altar, yeah, it's just a replica. It's not a real thing. So how does the rest of Israel react to their explanation? Let's look at that in the next couple of verses. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. You wonder how it's going to go. It's this tense moment, but essentially they're okay with it, right? Like this tense moment of what's going to happen. They're like, man, we totally almost nunchucked you guys. You have no idea. Like, come on, give me a hug. Like they finally patch it up and they work through it. Like, okay, we're good. And so they move on. Isn't it ironic? The whole point of the altar was to be a symbol of their unity, and it results in such division. You note takers, kind of the three points coming out of this. As we look at this stack of stones, I want to look at the what, the why, and the how. Right? Every one of these stack of stones was to help them remember something. What are we to remember? Why do we need to remember that? And how do we live that out? I hope as you look at this altar, the what of it starts to jump off the page. Right? What was this supposed to remind them of when the people of God, when Israel saw this, after the confusion, right? It was a witness 
That although, man, we may look different, we may live in a different place, we are still a part of the family of God. That we can't just get into this tribalism. We need to understand the unity amongst the family and people of God. Part of the reason we don't read the Old Testament, right, doesn't seem to apply to us. Is there any chance we today in the church need to remember this same thing of the importance of having the unity amongst the people of God? I mean, it was so clear, unmissable. Man, we need to be united as brothers and sisters, as the family of God for us, brothers and sisters in Christ. But there are two things that would have pinged for them, right? Hey, this is a witness between us and you that we are brothers and sisters. But all of them would have remembered the civil war that almost broke out. So what do we need to remember? Yes, the need, the necessity of the family of God to be unified, but also you couldn't see that altar without being reminded of how difficult that is. We need to remember our need to be united, but we also need to remember this is going to be something we're going to have to fight for because this unity doesn't come easy. It didn't to them, and it doesn't to us. So important. We all need to remember that. I was recently kind of going through The Mandalorian with my daughter. So shout out to all the Star Wars nerds, right? We were watching it. And it was so funny. I was watching a scene and I saw a line. Like, it was like a great quote. And I like started writing it down. And, you know, my daughter's like, what are you doing? I'm like, it's the curse of a pastor. I can't shut off. Like, that's a great illustration. That's a great quote. <laughs> and so I'm listening to The Mandalorian. And then it says this right in the middle of it. Our people have suffered time and again from divisions and squabbling and factions. Mandalore has always been too powerful for any enemy to defeat. It is always our own division that destroys us. Is that not true? If you're wondering who the Star Wars nerds are, it's the person next to you that just whispered, this is the way. (laughs) Right? Now I was impressed that like I wrote this quote down, but then I found this image. And if I was more tech savvy, you know what I'd have done? I'd have crossed out Mandalore and I'd have put the church. Our people have suffered time and again from divisions and squabbling and factions. The church has always been too powerful for any enemy to defeat. It is always our own division that destroys us. Am I wrong? God has given us the church to be the greatest force of unity and love that this world has ever known. Has promised the gates of hell cannot defeat us. If we stay united, the powerful force that the church can be is unstoppable. And how often? It's our own division, our own squabbling, our own infighting that keeps us from being what we were meant to be. What do we need to remember? The importance of the people of God, the church of Christ, of brothers and sisters in Christ, to remember the importance of unity. But we all know it's so difficult. 
So that's where we have to get into the why. The what is easy, but it's so hard if we don't have a good why, we're never going to get there. So why? Why is it so important that we're united? I'm going to run through a couple of verses here. Psalm 133, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Why should we? Because God calls us to. He proclaims it is good. This should be enough. We shouldn't need more than this other than God saying, listen, this is my heart for my people. I want you to be united. It is good when you are united as the people of God. If that's not enough, I want you to see how serious God is about this. Let's look at how God feels about the opposite in the Proverbs. There are six things that the Lord hates. One who sows discord among brothers. Hate is a big word. When God says, I hate that, we should perk up. Like this is, again, six is not a big number. This is like in God's top list of things that he hates when we sow discord and division among brothers. I've sat with parents. Right? As a parent, I hate it when my kids mistreat other people. When they mistreat and hurt each other, it breaks my heart. I've sat with parents where there is division amongst their kids, amongst siblings, and it breaks that parent's heart. What are the odds that God is looking down upon us from heaven and seeing the family of God fighting each other? Brothers and sisters treating each other like enemies. And I can guarantee it breaks God's heart. I think that is enough for us. I would hope it would be. Why should we? Because it's that important. But I also think of why we need to fight for unity is we also need to understand biblically some of the purpose of unity. One, it's the heart of God and it breaks the heart of God. But there's also a point why God calls us to be unified. Again, that's a big passage. There's another big moment in scripture in John 17. It's called the high priestly prayer. This is Jesus just kind of praying his hope over the church. Listen to what Jesus says in John 17. That they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us. So that the world may believe that you sent me. I mean, in there, do you see the standard of our unity that Jesus is calling us to? The same unity in the Trinity. The way the Heavenly Father loves the Son, that's what we're striving for. That's what God wants of us. But do you understand the purpose? It's not unity for unity's sake. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did it ever cross your mind of what the effect of the division has when we squabble in the church, when we squabble and fight with other churches? It affects our ability to get about the mission of God. 
We got to get to the point where there's something more important than what I think is important. Again, that's where we're going to start getting into triage, right? There are bigger fish to fry. But that's part of the problem, right? When did the infighting start? The second the mission ended, there was infighting. I think this is so true. When mission decreases, division inevitably increases. And you see that in churches. When we're about the mission of God, there are more important things at hand than our squabbles, than our preferences, and we can let that go. Right? If we're in mission together, it's okay. I know that I annoy you, and I know you're like, you scream too much, and I can't stand it. I'm like, I get it. I'm sorry. But there are bigger things we need to worry about, okay? What if there's a mission at hand that there's a dying world of people that don't know God, that have never experienced the hope of Christ, and they're looking at the church and laughing and saying, there's no way they have it. Look at the way they fight with each other. You're telling me they're reconciled with God. And I think, right, the why this is so important is, is it, that's what helps us be effective in our mission of letting the world know who Jesus is. Even in the altars. Did you see in the story how it switched? Did you catch that? Right? At first, when they explained the altar, they said it's a witness between us. But that's not what they said at the end. Right? Ultimately, they said this altar is a witness so that they will know that the Lord is one. We need to have a greater purpose. And if it's unity for unity's sake, we're going to keep squabbling. If there's something bigger, we can let go of these things. That's true in marriage. Right? If all you're doing is fighting for your marriage and we need to get along, you're prone to quit and give up. But if you realize there's a greater mission to your marriage... The point of my marriage isn't just to get along. It's to reflect God and let the world know who God is. Well, then we can work through the difficulties and divisions and pursue unity. That is how I think we need to begin to do this. If we don't figure this out, it's going to inhibit the church's ability to share God's love with the world. But how do we do that? Right? That's the what and the why, but how is really difficult. Because it always seems like, okay, if we're going to be unified in our church and with other churches, doesn't that mean we're going to have to compromise truth? Right? That's the fear. Wait a minute. How can I be united with them when there's certain things that they teach that I think are wrong? I can't be united. And so we wrestle. Listen, when I'm calling for unity, I don't think we compromise on truth. There's a famous in the unity passage in Ephesians 4 when he's saying maintain unity. There's that famous line, we need to speak the truth in love. We don't let go of either of those. I'm not saying let go of the truth, but we still need to cling to love and grace. So how do we do that? How do we be unified as a church? And that's where I want to take us back to that idea of theological triage. Right? How do we be united? Just like when somebody comes to a hospital, I got to sort this out. What are we talking about? I think this is huge for us as the church to be able to live out the unity God calls us to. This is kind of what I mean by theological triage. Okay, we're not necessarily talking about sin issues. 
but on theological kind of discrepancies and debates, I got to be able to run it through this grid. Okay, is this an essential doctrine? What I mean by that is, does this affect salvation? Essentially, if I don't grasp this, I can't explain or experience the true gospel. Is salvation at stake? That's where I think the creeds in church history could be helpful. We did a series on the Apostles' Creed. right? Is this about the core of who God is and who Jesus is and how can we be saved? That is tier one. Now below that, there are non-essentials. Okay, this doesn't affect salvation. Now we can have a different view of end times and eschatology. We can have a different view about spiritual gifts. That is not an essential doctrine that means we have to divide over and that I am now going to treat you as my enemy. Now we got to talk about this because this isn't even a biblical you know, category. But then we just have preferences. And again, how much has the church squabbled and divided? Not over sin issues, not over theology, just preferences. Wow, the music's too loud. It's too quiet. Too much haze. Too little haze. Don't act like you haven't talked about that with other people in your community groups. Complained about the lighting. The... Right, I'm done. Right? What if we as a church build a big old stack of stones that said, okay, there's a mission at hand, and there are far bigger fish to fry than my preferences. Imagine the impact it would be on a community if they came into a place where it wasn't all of us fighting for our preferences, and we were fighting for the mission of God. That was the most important thing. Man, if we can get over ourselves, have a bigger mission at hand, then I think there are serious things. I'm not saying these aren't significant, especially non-essential things. And there is dicey things of, okay, can I be a member there? There are real questions. But we got to get the right category. Is this an essential? We got to be able to determine who is my family in the church. And then I got to treat them like family. This is what we go through in membership. Are all Christian beliefs the same or of equal weight? The answer is no. Paul says the gospel is of first importance. The essentials are in that tier one category. So how do we interact with each of the different categories? In essential beliefs, we must have unity. If we don't agree on this, then unity is inappropriate because there's nothing to unify around. Right? That was the problem with the tribes in the war. Wait a minute, have you gone to another god? If you have, then we aren't family. So we have to have unity. Some of you, in pursuing of unity, need more courage to stand on the essentials and say, no, I cannot compromise on this. I will not let it go. If you don't hold this, then we are seeing this different. We are not brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, in non-essentials, we can have liberty. We can say, hey, we don't have to see this the same way. The Apostle Paul did this. He did this all the time. You're talking about the weaker brother. Hey, even if I see this different, they answer to God, not to me. He says, I'm going to let all of that go. Why? For the sake of the gospel. For the sake of focusing on the essentials. And let's be clear. 
even if you say, okay, we worship a different God, in all beliefs, charity, we need to be kind. The church is famous for being so hateful and angry. I will never let go and compromise on the truth. But how I approach one a brother in Christ, I need to treat them like family. And even if we say, okay, man, you are outside of the church of Christ, I still need to be loving and gracious. How many people in here, again, we can spiritualize it for the sake of truth. We can spiritualize a lot of hate. Some people need more courage. Some people just need more kindness. Where do you err? There are a couple of huge errors. One is making all non-essentials an essential belief. Right? And we go to war over eschatology, over spiritual gifts, and we make every issue in the church, and that's where you hear all these divisions. Well, it's the 13th Baptist Church of the Third Convention of New Rochester. Like, gosh! It's because every non-essential has become of the utmost importance. We can't do that. John Calvin says this really well, the great reformer. A difference of opinion over these non-essentials, over these non-essential matters, should in no way be the basis of schism among Christians. Either we must leave no church remaining, or we must condone delusion in those matters, which can go on without harm to the sum of religion, without the loss of of salvation. That's theological triage. He's saying, look, if this isn't an essential salvation gospel issue, our options are we can attack and go to war with every church, or we can say, okay, there's liberty to disagree, and I can still love you as a brother in Christ and not treat you as my enemy and say there's liberty in these different theological camps. But I want to be dead clear, I think, There are two clear errors. I think when you read this passage, you can think there's only one. That, oh, church, we overact, we make a big deal about everything. The the book that I mentioned, the tagline on it is knowing what hills to die on. So the church can struggle with dying on every hill. Again, every non-essential, let's go to war over that. And there's so much division. Make no mistake, there is an equal and opposite error on dying on no hills. That we can compromise everything. And that's where you see this dangerous, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something. No, we need to die on the hill of the essentials and say we cannot unify unless these essentials are in place. And it sounds so mean, right? Like, we all love this idea of the heart for unity, but we got to draw the line somewhere, and we have to draw it around the essentials of the gospel. But doesn't it sound so mean to say, oh, they're outside of that, or they're wrong? I want to play a clip as we're closing our time, because I think it really gets at the heart of theological triage, the necessity of it, and the compassion of it. So we're talking about World War II. There's a scene in the movie from Pearl Harbor after the massive attack in the flood of patients to the hospital. It's a short clip, but I think really gets at the heart of our need for triage. Watch this. Here, use this. I need you to go outside. There's too many to help. Okay, you got to sort them out. Only those that can be saved you bring in here. You got that? I can't. No, please do it. I need you to do it. Go, go. 
said is a short clip, and she had to pull out lipstick because nothing else would write. She started writing on the foreheads, triage, is this critical? Is this fatal? And I hope you catch it, right? Nothing in her wanted to do that, but just the passion of the doctor of like, listen, you have to do this. If you don't do this, people die. As we look at theological triage, is it any less significant? It truly is a matter of life and death, of spiritual life and spiritual death. And I love that she doesn't want to do it. Nothing in me wants to draw somebody outside of the bounds of Christianity. But it's a matter of life and death. It's not out of hate or judgmentalism that I say, no, this is critical, that this is an essential. There are times when she goes out and she wrote fatal on somebody's head that was dying. The only response to that, and you see it in the movie, is weeping. In the church, we seem to take pleasure to say, that guy's out, that guy's out, that guy's a heretic. And it almost seems like a sick joy to say, you're out. If we are going to cling to and uncompromise on the essentials, we better do that with tears in our eyes. It is not out of hate. It's out of love to say, this is too important. You need to know this. This is essential. And if you don't have this gospel, you do not have life. Then we are not together in the family of God in the church of Christ. But of course, the massive danger of making everything critical. And how much, and I think this was my big takeaway, how many of us in here today have gone to war with a brother and sister in Christ? Someone whose family treated them like an enemy over non-essentials. I've dogged other churches. I've made fun of other churches. I've dogged other Christians. And I'm confessing that because I think that breaks God's heart. How many people in the family of God have you attacked like an enemy? And I'm not saying you don't have hard conversations, but that's your brother. That's your sister. If they are in the family of God and hold to those essentials, we got to figure out how to be united because it is too important. The mission of God is too important for us to keep fighting each other and we have to figure it out. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? God, this is messy. This is difficult. And I confess now I've done this wrong. I confess now I don't know how to do this right now. But God, it is necessary. You call us to do this as the church. You say that we would be one so the world would know who you are. Would you give us a heart for unity, a love for each other, and a vision for the mission that is above our preferences, that above our squabbles, that right now we can confess that and put it to rest and get about your mission in unify as the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Redemption Chapel. Go to redemptionchapel.com for more resources and information.